0: Time contains graphic and explicit content It may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Stop Horror Time, the podcast for 220 something LGBTs talk the horror of the week real-life crime or events, and if it's worthy of being an honorary gay film, and yes, the titles are puns, and I'm Elle. I'm Kate. And we are super excited to talk to you about this movie, because we did something really straight last week, so we had to do something (laughs) super gay. Yeah. (laughs) Kate, what's our horror movie of the week? Okay.
1: Let me just preface all of this by saying I hope we do this movie justice. Okay, so we are doing Alfred Hitchcock's 1948 gay classic *Rope*. Uh, It's based on a it's based on a London play by Patrick Hamilton and was adapted for the screen by Arthur Lawrence. Uh, It follows it's 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 famous for um, appearing to be only one shot. They actually had to film it in in 10 minute increments because that's how long a reel lasted. So it's actually, it's technically nine reels, but it's supposed to all look in one shot. Uh, and it's just about these two men who murder someone just to see if they can get away with it. because they have a superiority complex uh, and it starts off with the murder and they put the body in like a trunk and use it as a table for a dinner party where like they've invited the dude's parents and like all their like school chums and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> i was explaining this to some coworkers yesterday who like hadn't heard of it and uh, they're like oh where's it playing and i'm like i wish <laughs> i think they thought i was talking about a new movie i wish <laughs> like oh this sounds cool let's go <laughs> like yeah you gotta come to my house <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but yeah so so conflict arises in it when uh they invite the headmaster from their uh prep school because that was a thing back then uh, from prep school played by jimmy stewart who uh that upsets one of them because he's like that's the one person that could uh you know be onto us about something you know
0: oh yeah yeah it's just super tense like the entire time because yeah. one of them is like it's like they're so like um you know uh Brandon is just so like calm and collected, and like yeah. Philip is over there, just like slowly disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Just like as the entire party is going, you can just see him just breaking down.
1: It's so fascinating, and th- I think this was Farley Granger's breakout role, and he's so good in it. Oh uh, yeah, our sweet boy, our murdering boy, <laughs> <laughs> the sweet murdering boy. Yeah. So one th- one thing I did, I did some. I really wanted to do this right and did some research and like Arthur Lawrence gave a great interview on the DVD of it that I'd recommend y'all checking out. But one thing I learned that, that, uh, really kind of changed the way I'm looking at it all now is like, he said that he didn't want to show the murder at the beginning. That was Hitchcock's idea. And oh, that, wow. like, you know, he just... He wanted... He thought that the tension from everything in this came from you trying to guess whether or not there's actually a body in there. Like, I don't know why, oh. I don't know why you wouldn't know that. Like, they're talking about... That they just murdered someone. <laughs> but I guess maybe he's trying to, like, fuck with you. And so that's why, like, scenes where, like, someone might be... Like, the housekeeper almost opens it when she's cleaning up. And, like, oh, and like, he... So the audience would be like, oh, we're gonna see if there's a body or not! But, like, I always found extreme tension in this movie just because you're worried about them getting caught like you oh yeah the tension i guess it just like it just switched the tension what hitchcock did with showing the murder in the beginning mm-hmm. um because now you're just like oh they're think they to get caught like oh oh and especially when james stewart comes in as a what's his name i'm just gonna be calling him james stewart aren't i okay he's calling
0: james, <laughs> james <laughs> King stewart
1: he has a name in it? rupert is that rupert yeah
0: yeah that sounds right
1: yeah <laughs> that sounds about right no one can hitchcock can't correct us now <laughs> um, let's get into. I, we really can't even really talk about this without talking about the true crime case because they're so heavily related. Yes. Uh, so if you wanna, if you wanna do your thing.
0: Hell yeah. Okay, we're going back to 1923. Um, so it was late November, 1923, and this is known as the Leopold and the Loeb case when it all started. So. Uh, Richard Loeb was hey, driving sorry. with his friend. Sorry, oh. my, my cat's trying to do something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um,
0: so, in November 10th of 1923, uh, Richard Loeb uh, had driven with uh, his lover... Uh mm-hmm. and friend, Nathaniel Leopold, yep. from Chicago to the University of Michigan, um, about six hours to burglarize Loeb's former fraternity, Zeta Beta Tau. Uh, they'd only managed to steal about eighty dollars in loose change, a few watches, some pen knives, and a typewriter. So it was a lot of effort with little reward. And yep. so uh, Leopold was kinda pissed. <laughs> um <laughs> he even like he started complaining about their relationship that it was too one-sided because he always joined Loeb in his escapades, yet Loeb held him at arm's length, um, and eventually Loeb managed to, like, you know, assure him no, that's not the case, and that he has loyalty to him and all that. And so Loeb then started talking about his idea to carry out the perfect crime because they had committed several burglaries together. Um, they'd also committed some arson on a couple occasions, but none of their misdeeds had been reported in the newspapers. And so Loeb wanted to commit a crime that would set all of Chicago talking And they decided what can be more sensational than the kidnapping and murder of a child. If they demanded a ransom from the parents, so much the better. Um, It'd be a difficult and complex task to obtain the ransom without being caught. So to kidnap a child would be an act of daring, and nobody that Loeb proclaimed would ever know who had accomplished it. Uh, The two had met in the summer of 1920, uh, they had grown up in Kenwood, which was a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Um, and they both in 1924, uh, Leopold was studying at the Law of the University of Chicago, uh, and Leopold was only 19 at the time. Uh, Richard Loeb was from 18, he came from a wealthy family. Uh, his father was the vice president of Sears, Roebuck, and Company. He, he possessed an estimated fortune of 10 million dollars. Uh, he was the third son in a family of four boys. Um, he graduated university high school at age of 14 and also went to the University of Chicago. So I'm just going to skip one of all past that here because we want to talk about the crime. Get to the good stuff. Yeah, get to the good stuff. So Leopold had no objection to Loeb's plan to kidnap the kid. They'd spent long hours together that winter discussing the crime, uh, planning its details, and they decided upon a $10,000 ransom, and they decided that they were had to make this foolproof, this part. Um, they direct the victim's father to throw a packet containing the money from the train that traveled south of Chicago along the elevated tracks west of Lake Michigan. Uh, they'd be waiting below in a car, and as soon as the ransom hit the ground, they would scoop it up and make good their escape. So on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb drove their rental car slowly around the streets of the south side of Chicago looking for a possible victim. Uh, After driving around Kenwood, their old neighborhood, for a few hours, they were ready to abandon the kidnapping for another day. But then, as they were driving along, uh, Loeb was sitting in the rear passenger seat, saw his cousin, Bobby Franks, walking south on the opposite side of the road. Uh, Bobby's father, Loeb knew was a wealthy businessman who would be able to pay the ransom. So they pulled up alongside the boy. Uh, Loeb talked to him, saying they would give him a ride. Um, Bobby originally refused, saying that he'd just walk... Um, but Loeb coerced him into saying, I want to talk to you about the tennis racket you had yesterday. I want to get one for my brother. Um, Bobby just got into the front car after being talked to a little longer. So he, cause he didn't want to like grab it. He was hoping he would just come into the car just so that way he wouldn't make any noise. Um, he introduced him to Leopold then, uh, and they started taking him around the block. And so, Loeb had a chisel on this car seat beside him that had been taped up on the blade so the blunt in could be used as a club. Um, and when Bobby looked away from Loeb, uh, he grabbed the boy from uh, behind with his left hand to stop him from crying out and hit him a few times with the chisel on his skull, uh, but he was still conscious. He hit him again a couple times in the forehead... But he was still alive, uh, still conscious, and there was a large hole in his forehead by this point because there was a lot of blood going on. It was going across the seats on his uh, pants, just spilling onto the floor. Um, so then to possibly even try to get this kid unconscious, they jammed a rag down his throat, um, tore off a large strip of adhesive tape and taped his mouth shut, uh, and then he was quiet and... Was just like lying on the car floor. Uh, so he was dead at this point because of the injuries they had given him. So they decided they had to dispose of the body in a remote spot that was several miles south of Chicago. But the crime was not perfect. A pair of eyeglasses nope. <laughs> fell from Leopold's jacket onto the muddy ground. But Leopold dropped the ransom letter in a post box. Once they got back to the city, uh, it would arrive at the Franks' house at 8 o'clock the next morning. Um, the next day, a passerby spotted the body and called the police, and the Franks' family did confirm that the victim was 14-year-old Bobby. Uh, the crime unraveled, and there was no longer any thought on the part of Leopold and Lowe of attempting to collect the ransom. They were able to trace the ownership of the eyeglasses back to Leopold, and, uh, Thanks to state's attorney, Robert Crowe, and they were determined to become the lead suspects. So, ten days after the murder, on May 31st, both boys confessed and demonstrated to the state's attorney how they had killed Bobby Franks. Uh, Crowe uh, boasted to the press that it would be the most complete case ever presented to a grand or petit jury, and the defendants would certainly hang. Um, but the trial also would be a sensation. Uh, Nathan Leopold admitted they had murdered Bobby Sully for the thrill of the experience. Uh, a quote that he gave to a newspaper reporter was, A thirst for knowledge is highly commendable no matter how extreme pain or injury it may inflict upon others. A six-year-old boy is justified in pulling the wings from a fly if by doing so he learns that without wings the fly is helpless. Uh, and there was also just... Everything combined in the defendant's wealth, their intellectual ability, the high regard within Chicago for their families, and the nature of the homicide made it one of the most intriguing murders in the history of Cook County, and the public's interest in... The trial was driven by more than lurid fascination with the grisly details of the case uh sometime within the past few years, the country experienced a shift in public morality, so women had bobbed their hair, smoked cigarettes, drank gin, wore short skirts, sexuality was everywhere uh young people were taking advantage of their new freedom, so the air around the place was just changing at the same time that this was happening, so it was a wild time.
1: <laughs> you can almost say they were roaring, it was roaring
0: uh crow could count on the support of an outraged public on his side um of the murders but there was also a adversary in the courtroom the families of the murderers had hired clarice darrow as the defense attorney he had achieved a notoriety within court uh, cook county i hate saying that as a clever speaker <laughs> He was a great lawyer and a champion of the weak and defenseless. Um, He'd also become the most famous lawyer in the country when he successfully defended socialist labor leader Eugene Debs against conspiracy charges that grew out of a strike against the Pullman Palace Car Company one year later, after the trial's over. Uh, Darrow knew that he might be able to play the trial of Leopold and Loeb to his advantage. He was passionately opposed to the death penalty. He saw it as a barbaric and vengeful punishment that served no purpose except to satisfy the mob uh, the trial would provide him with the means to persuade the American public that death penalty had no place in the modern judicial system. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah.
1: He was so that like, worked
0: out, huh? So that, <laughs> yeah, that worked. So the, in terms of legal strategy, the burden fell heaviest on Darrow. Um, he was trying to decide how to plead his clients. He could not plead them innocence if they had confessed. Uh, and there was no indication that the state's attorney had obtained their statements under arrest. Um, but he also could not really plead them as reason of insanity because they appeared entirely lucid and coherent. So mm-hmm. they didn't have the inability to distinguish right from wrong. So that's the accepted test of insanity in the Illinois courts at that time. So probably guilty is the only way to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, on July 21st, 1924, the opening day of court, John, Judge John Cavalry indicated that the attorneys for each side could present their motions. Uh, Darrow asked the judge to appoint a special commission to determine if the defendants were insane. Uh, the results of an insanity hearing might abrogate the need for a trial. If the commission decided that they were insane, uh, Calvary could on his own initiative send them to an asylum. Uh, there was also possible that the defense would ask the court to try each defendant separately. Um, but Darrow already had expressed his belief that the killings were a consequence of each defendant influencing the other. Uh, there was no indication that the defense would argue for a severance at that time. Uh, Darrow might also present a motion to remove the case from the Cook County Criminal Court. Say that five times fast. <laughs> you could never be in a production of Chicago if you can't say Cook County a lot. <laughs> Cook County Jail. Okay. Uh, Almost immediately after the kidnapping, Leopold had driven the rental car across the state line to Indiana, uh, so maybe Bobby had died outside Illinois and the murder did not fall within the jurisdiction of it, but uh, Darrow had already declared that he would not ask for a change of venue. So, there's uh, no obtaining the hanging verdict for that one. So by pleading them guilty, Darrow avoided a trial by jury. Calvary would preside over a hearing to determine the punishment. Uh, the punishment might range from the death penalty to a minimum of 14 years in prison. Um, he, Darrow had essentially turned the case on its head. He no longer needed to argue insanity in order to save them from the gallows. He'll need to persuade the judge that they were mentally ill uh, to obtain a reduction in their sentence. And Darrow needed only a reduction from death by hanging to life in prison to win his case. Mm-hmm. So during July and August of 1924, the psychiatrists presented their evidence. Uh, William Allenson White, the president of the American Psychiatric Association, told the court that both Leopold and Loeb had experienced trauma at an early age at the hands of their governesses. Um, Loeb had grown up under a disciplinary regimen, so exacting that in order to escape punishment, he had no other recourse but to lie to his governess, and he had been set on like a path of criminality, in White's uh, account at least. Um, White said that he considered himself the master criminal mind of the century, controlling a large band of criminals who he directed, even at times he thought himself as being so sick as to be confined to bed, but so brilliant and capable of mind that the underworld came to him and sought his <laughs> advice and asked for his direction. Uh, Leopold had also been traumatized, having been sexually intimate with his governess at an early age. Uh, oh, but, shit. uh, yeah, it's... I didn't know that. Oh, Yeah. Um, Other psychiatrists, William Healy, the author of The Individual Delinquent, and Bernard Glick, professor of psychiatry at the New York Postgraduate School and Hospital, um, both confirmed that the boys possessed a vivid fantasy life. Uh, Leopold pictured himself as a strong and powerful slave, favored by a sovereign to settle disputes in single-handed combat. Um, Each fantasy interlocked with the other... Uh, Loeb, in translating his fantasy of being a criminal mastermind into reality, required an audience for his misdeeds and gladly recruited Leopold as a willing participant. So each set of psychiatrists were kind of just going back and forth, though, because there were some that were saying, uh, yes, they're kind of insane. Others were like, no, there's no defective vision, no defective hearing, no evidence of any defect Mm -hmm. of any of the sense of paths, just like, you know, they're sane. The cool motive, still murder. (laughs) Cool motive, still murder. Uh, So, uh, 9.30 on the morning of September 10th, 1924, Calvary prepared to sentence the prisoners after all this arguing back and forth, presenting the evidence that said yes they're insane, no, they're insane. Uh, The final day of the hearing was to be broadcast live over station WGN and throughout the city. uh, Groups of Chicagoans... (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> a weird word. Uh, clustered around the radios, heads to listen. Um, like basically, everyone was just like, "What? What is like? Everything stopped. Like we have to hear what this." Uh, Calvary's statement was brief. In determining punishment, he gave no weight to the guilty plea. Uh, normally, a guilty plea could mitigate punishment if it saved the prosecution the time and trouble of demonstrating culpability, but that had not been the case on this occasion. Uh, The defendants, Calvary stated, have been shown in essential respects to be abnormal. The careful analysis made of the life history of the defendants and of their present mental, emotional, and ethical condition has been of extreme interest. And yet the court feels strongly that similar analysis made of other persons accused of crime would probably reveal similar or different abnormalities. For this reason, the court is satisfied that his judgment in the present case cannot be affected thereby." At the time of the murder, uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb had been 19 and 18 years old, Uh, and so there was also the argument of if their youth mitigated the punishment um, since Mm. the prosecution. That doesn't uh, happen anymore nowadays, does it? (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. Uh, The prosecuting attorneys um, emphasized that many murderers of similar age had been executed in Cook County, uh, and none had planned their deeds with as much deliberation and forethought as Leopold and Loeb. Um, It would be outrageous. Crow had argued for the prisoners to escape the death penalty when others, even those younger than 18, had been hanged. Um, But Calvary decided he would hold back from imposing the extreme penalty on account of the age of the defendants. He sentenced each defendant instead to 99 years for the kidnapping and life in prison for the murder. The court believes, Calvary stated, that was within his province to decline to impose the sentence of death on persons who are not a full age. This determination allowed appears to be in accordance with the progress of criminal law all over the world and with the dictates of enlightened humanity. So it was like a victory for the defense, but a defeat for the state. Um, They were escorted back to their cells. There were dozens of reporters crowded around the defense uh, table to hear Darrow's response to the victory. Um, Darrow said it was more of a punishment than death would have been. It's because it's pretty tough. It's 99 years plus life imprisonment. So it's like, yeah, they're not ever getting out, ever. Uh, Crow was pretty pissed off about it. Um, He made sure everybody knew who was to blame. It was the state's attorney's duty to be fully performed. He's in no measure responsible for the decision to the court. The responsibility for that decision rests with the judge alone. Uh, So, yeah, he kind of was going off about that for a little while. Um, So Nathan and Richard were in prison. For the rest of their lives, uh, but their fates would take different paths. In 1936, inside Statesville Prison, James Day, a prisoner serving a sentence for grand larceny, stabbed Loeb in the shower room. And despite the best efforts of the prison doctors, uh, 30-year-old Loeb died of his wounds shortly afterwards. Leopold served 33 years in prison until he won parole in 1958. Holy shit, that was my dad's birth year. I love it. <laughs> So wasn't that long ago. Um, at the parole hearing, he was asked whether he realized that every media outlet in the country would want an interview with him, um, he, and Leopold replied, "I don't want any part of lecturing television, radio, or trading on the notoriety." Um, he said, "All I want, if I am so lucky, is to ever see freedom again, is to try to become a humble little person." Uh, he moved to Puerto Rico upon his release, where he lived in relative obscurity, studying for a degree in social work at the University of Puerto Rico, writing a monograph on the birds of the island, and in 1961 marrying Trudy Garcia de Cuervo, the yeah, okay yes, uh, the extravagant widow of a Baltimore physician. Uh, during the 1960s leopold was finally able to travel to chicago he returned to the city often to see old friends tour the south side neighborhood near the university and to place flowers on the graves of his mother and father and two brothers Um, he was the sole survivor of this entire thing and he did eventually pass away at age 66 on august 29 1971 in puerto rico and the newspapers wrote of the murder as the crime of the century, an event mm. so inexplicable and shocking that it would never be forgotten. So that is the crime of Leopold and Loeb, which did inspire rope that was inspired by the play. So Yeah. That it I mean, so like
1: <laughs> Yeah, how about that? Yeah, like the main comparison that brings up when talking about this, or like the inspiration, is the idea of like Nietzsche and everything because that's like Leopold was fascinated by him and that's where he got those ideals of like like superiority and super beings and everything and that, that carries into what Brandon talks about in Rope and what
0: mm-hmm. James
1: Stewart whose character name I simply forgot. Uh, like that's because that those were his ideals in the movie that carried on to Brandon and Baran was like, Oh, maybe she's right. Um, but I guess the main difference is uh, James Stewart was never gonna act on them or so he claims, you know. Yeah. I was it's like you. You twisted my words. I'm like you're literally. You, you were talking about murder, sir. <laughs> like I think you. Just, you were saying it, sir. Maybe you should just be more careful about what you're saying to young melting minds because some of them are fucking crazy.
0: <laughs> Rupert. Uh, Rupert Cudell, That's his name. Rupert. Rupert!
1: Thank you. Okay. So okay. <laughs> Thank you. I wrote it down somewhere and couldn't find it. But anyways, so yeah. But so what's interesting enough though, was like even though it's so obviously like inspired by them. um no one, they didn't really acknowledge it while making it. Like, Arthur Lawrence said that, like, he brought it up or something, and everyone was just like, yeah, yeah, anyways. (laughs) Like, because they didn't want to talk about that, because then they would also have to acknowledge all of the homosexual text and subtext in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which brings us to our next portion of Is It Gay? Because, yes, it definitely is. Um, Holy shit, Is It Gay. Holy shit. Okay, so... Preface this by saying, you know, this is the 1948. The Hayes Code was still in effect, mm-hmm. and and not just not just in movies, but in in life. Like, you know, let me let me find a quote here. Let's let's start off with a really great quote, great quote by Arthur Lawrence. Hell yeah! So said, the culture at that time was trying to deny that homosexuality even existed, and here they had well-known Hollywood players involved in it, so they didn't want to see what was there. What's extraordinary about Rope is its treatment of homosexuality. I mean, today is still one of the most sophisticated movies ever made on that subject. Probably treats them more as people than anybody else has. Hitchcock certainly knew that, and it certainly attracted him. And what he liked was not that they were homosexual, but that they were homosexual murderers. If they were just murderers, he wouldn't have been interested. If they were just homosexual, he wouldn't have interested you had to have a little another little twist to it mm-hmm. so like in a way yeah like uh i mean because they, they still got away with so much like they had to take away so much like in the okay. the, the, the play was in uh, is in was in london an english playwright, and in that it was completely explicit and oh, even yes. even like with the two boys with brandon and philip but also that um that Rupert had had an affair with one of them and it was also homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that part was completely, uh, allegedly erased from the film once they got James Stewart in uh, yeah. because they're like, you can't play gay. But like, you still, I don't know. I still see it. <laughs> 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 Especially because of the, I call it the gay recognized gay. It's like he was the, the only one that's onto them. Oh, yeah. From the star is one of their kind. Like, he's like, wait oh, a
0: minute. <laughs> the radar is on. <laughs> but, yeah, like, oh, shit. Did you know that uh, John Dahl, that played Brandon, was believed to have been gay, while Farley Ranger, uh, who played Philip, was bisexual? Oh, yeah,
1: I should probably bring that up, yeah. Yeah, so, that that was the <sighs> other thing is... And, like, they knew this going in, that, like... Yeah. So, yeah, John Dahl was gay... Charlie Granger was bi, Arthur Lawrence was gay, like all of these like queer people were put into making this movie, and everyone was okay with it as long as it wasn't acknowledged. Like Arthur Lawrence said that they all called it. it, Like, oh, we're making a movie about it, meaning homosexuality, like, and the actors are it and the characters are it, but we never say what it is, and that's how they got away with it. Like it sucks because it's still a form of erasure, but like that was the only way they could get get through with it. And like uh-huh. um, even even downplaying the differences from the play, like, I guess even they had to circle, like, they would, like, circle scripts, like, oh, this, a uh, part's in the script, like, every time they said, like, my dear boy or something like that, he's like, this is too gay, we gotta cut it out. It's, it's <laughs> like, too much. But, it's like, much. it's just so fascinating because, like, they, they still managed to get away with so much, even with all of the censorship and everything, like... Starting from the beginning, the very opening scene where they kill him, like it's 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 so it's it's like referenced as a sex scene. It starts with a scream and then like the aftermath, like like he doesn't want to turn the lights on and then Brandon starts smoking a cigarette. You're like, this is this is post-coital, is what it is. Like it's all it's just an allegory for that. Like and then just like I don't know if this was the intention, but like just the whole idea of not getting caught or something, where he's like, oh, if only we could have done it in the daylight. You're like, oh, and like it uh. just. It just feels kind of like... The way they're reacting and trying to not get caught by the murder just kind of feels like probably how like gay men at the time felt all the time of, like, am yeah. I going to be discovered for this? And, like, that just adds a whole layer to all of this. It makes it way more fascinating than just two asshole dudes that wanted to kill someone. Like, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't have worked without this, like, like you said. Um, it's just fascinating, man. Just one... I've been... <laughs> One big euphemism. It truly is. One big, they also, like, I love how, like, catty all the characters are. Like, for lack of a better word, like, I'm just like, they're all, especially like the way, like, I wrote down that, like, the the way all of the men behave, like, with the women, it's like they're talking to their hags or something. Like, when Brandon's talking to, um, to Janet, I'm just like, what is, they're all just, like, being assholes to each other. Oh my god. I don't know,
0: what did you think of all this? This was your second time seeing it, right? Yeah, I think my, yeah, my second time, my um, watching it, and I was just, oh my god. It's just, it is so gay. <laughs> I love <it>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Um, and, that, and, like, they cut so much out of it, and mm-hmm. still, when they released it into theaters, so many theaters banned it from being yeah, screened.
1: Yeah, like, what a goal, like, like <laughs> banned. God, God what, what goals in life I wish to have. I want to make a movie that's too gay to be shown in theaters.
0: <laughs> Hitchcock did it first. Hitchcock did it first. And we thank him for that. <laughs> but I, I think it's also, like, the casting was, like, really good. Like, it's it's yeah. super well done so I don't think it would have worked if it had just been like anybody else I couldn't imagine it as anybody else well I know that a lot of like
1: a lot of people in the making of it including James Stewart himself thought he was wrong for the role and that like because like
0: because
1: like Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant and that's why there's that like reference in it where she's like oh I prefer Cary Grant myself it's like a (laughs) little it's like a little nod but um Yeah. yeah Hitchcock had offered it to Cary Grant and to Montgomery Clift uh, mm-hmm. As one of the boys, but they both turned it down because they were like, like oh I don't. Even though they were both, well, Mo- Montgomery Glyph is like confirmed queer, but like Carrie Grant, it's all you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> him living with Randolph Scott, what could that mean? Um, but suffice it to say, you know, they they turned down the role because of it, as if, it. as they would say, they didn't want to be associated with it. Uh, but I, I guess Farley Granger and John Dahl were game, and they're like, oh, hell yeah, let's
0: do it. <laughs> <Stop. laughs> do Oh, then, God, yeah. Jimmy then, Stewart's face uh, when she when she said I prefer Cary Grant, He just kind of like... He's so funny!
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I loved that. Gotta put but, a screen cap of that up on her Oh, yeah, I took a picture site. of it. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Drag him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but
1: yeah, I mean, I still think it works. Like, I've, I think it's been confirmed that, like, james stewart didn't know about any of the homosexual subtext in it like i mean I, maybe if a queer actor had played it it would have gone overboard like maybe that's what kept all of this safe it's like oh we got james stewart he's like he's a cowboy we got this like i think and he brought the star power to the movie too I'm not just talking about like straightness versus gayness. he brought the star power to the movie that helped it get made because the two leads were unknowns pretty much yes I also just I love Brandon and Philip's dynamic. Like they they bicker like an old married couple. It just makes it even
0: gay. Oh, all the time. He's like, you gotta calm down. They're sh- they're you so gotta calm down, Philip.
1: Yeah, just calm down. I, I love what a mess Philip is. I love I love like the piano scene. Like, <laughs> what he's like the worst murder partner ever. From the beginning, he is like oh, gonna yeah. give themselves away. You know. Um, oh, the piano scene is so interesting though. Where he's like where he's playing piano and like, the more questions. Rupert starts asking the faster it starts playing and then when like he's like oh you're just you're just trying to he's like, oh you just want Janet and wants his face to get together I, he's like oh <laughs> and then like he starts playing slowly again when he thinks he's not on to him anymore it's just so it's just an interesting way to show like the inner workings of what's going on with him mm-hmm oh
0: I don't know I, I love this movie it's so good it's so good I- I think the most recent thing uh, that came with Rope, because it's also been an influence on so many other uh, films and series. Uh, There was a uh, BBC2 comedy series in 2009 called Psychoville, uh, where episode four of it was a delivery two-take pastiche of Rope. Mm. Um, A 2002 film called RSVP borrowed several key elements from Rope, uh, and in which the film is discussed in the movie. Uh, there was an independent 1992 film by Tom Camlin that depicted the actual Leopold and Loeb events. Uh, it's called Swoon. And oh, I love Rake. Swoon! Swoon! Fuck yeah. uh, in Rake, season 2, episode 3, Woolridge and Aenor. uh the film is seen as an influence for a murder by two schoolgirls. So, it's a pretty popular uh, mill nowadays it's like i think it was one of like the lost five hitchcock films because like the estate had it at some point and then they eventually decided to re-release it uh to the public and then um it's currently holds a 93 percent on rotten tomatoes uh with a positive review so watch this movie yeah i mean i don't i don't
1: know how how like where this falls on the spectrum of like well-known Hitchcock to like the normies I would say like, mm-hmm. like like I said when I was explaining it to my co-workers they none of them had heard of it they at least have heard of Psycho I think at least because of Bates Motel like they know B- like if if there's an oh, update yeah. in the zeitgeist they'll know what it is or I'm like okay you know when you go to Universal Studios and you go to the Psycho House it's from that but like yeah. I guess Rope may be a little less well-known than that um
0: yeah because I hadn't heard of it until you told me about oh shit it.
1: okay okay
0: yeah yeah, this, uh, this has become my favorite Hitchcock movie. Like, mm-hmm. And damn, do I want that apartment that they're in.
1: Oh my god. Oh, yes. oh yeah, so did you, fun fact that like, so this was filmed on the Warner Brothers lot. It That studio that they used is now Central Perk from Friends. Like they filmed, this was yes. technically filmed in Central Park. So now next, uh, folks visiting... Los Angeles can go to Burbank, do the Warner Brothers studio tour. You can sit in Central Park and just know that you're in the rope set where all the magic happened. Yeah, like, Hitchcock was really proud of the set. Like, he had, like, celebrities come visit it all the time. Like, look at this movie I'm making. Like, it was, He was, like, very, he was very, like, into the technical aspect of it all because you had to be when if you have a vision of doing what looks be oh, a yeah. singular shot and apparently didn't spend like any time on the actors and it kind of pissed james stewart off <laughs> but i mean it worked out sometimes oh yeah because like, i think directing most of your job is done with the casting and when the casting is this good especially with your two boys two special oh, boys yeah. uh,
0: <laughs> he's two special boys my, my
1: two special boys <laughs> and like, they, like the supporting characters are all really solid too like oh my god the woman that does astrology i was dying i'm like mm, <laughs> another gay aspect of this film is the astrology Yeah, <laughs> she's doing like oh, she's doing palm uh, readings and asking everyone what their sign is like oh my god <laughs>
0: yeah anita atwater yeah thank yeah. you yeah thank you she's yeah. amazing it's a good name <laughs> i love her you're a cancer you're a moon child and We're you're now. like of course he's a cancer.
1: yeah well I said yeah I said of course he's a cancer because I'm a cancer I'm like of course I would be fill in all of this I'd probably be like crying the whole time after I killed someone like, crying and drinking and just being a
0: gay mess like that's me I can relate to this <laughs> oh mood oh mood yeah, yeah and like and also because it was that uh long shot Uh, that they wanted to have going throughout the movie like Mm -hmm. obviously they had to do the cuts because of like the limitations at the time yeah um they wanted to have as few mistakes as possible and like at one point a camera operator's foot was broken by a heavy dolly (gasps) and so they like gagged him to stop his like vocal noises from being recorded and hauled him out of the studio oh shit and i'm just like don't ruin the (laughs) take It, it's like I can just picture like behind the camera like they have to keep acting but you can just see this guy being like gagged oh, in the hall by like God. five people so, like just keep going <laughs> Anyways <Just> keep going. <laughs> God no yeah that's the yeah, rope 1948 Alfred Hitchcock what a movie <laughs> that you should all see immediately. watch it right now.
1: yeah well I, I convinced everyone at work to go watch it but let's see if they do it. We'll come back this weekend
0: do it. It's just, ah, uh, so good. I just can't get over how good it is. I love it so much. I'm glad. I love it. I know, it. it's
1: it's just like, I, a dream double feature would be this in Strangers on a Train, like the two mm. the two gay Farley Granger Hitchcock movies.
0: Double gay. Double, I love it.
1: Double,
0: yeah. Ah, oh, this was such a good movie. I'm so glad we got to talk about this one because it's not like horror like most of the horror that we've already covered it's like there's no gore it's straight up like thriller horror going on here Mm -hmm. and I adore it I love those kind of movies it's a nice little nice little change Mm -hmm. but I'm very excited for next week's uh, episode what so would you like to tell everybody about our next episode we're
1: having a special guest next episode our very first guest on the show uh, her name is Sydney. She's one of my best, oldest friends. And she works at Sundance now, so I call her Sundance Cindy. And I think that's going to bring some cred to our show. we got someone working at it, the good old Sundance Institute. Um, Hell yeah. We're going to be covering The Perfect Host, starring David Hyde Pierce, uh, who I refer to as the Tony Steeler, and you'll see why. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is a wild-ass movie, so uh, mm. be prepared. <laughs> and I just wanted to give a little shout-out to a couple, like, we are obviously a very, very small little podcast, uh, made by two no ones. But I just, we have a few dedicated fans. I just wanted to give a shout out to Little Alt Girl and Carter Adams on Twitter. Y'all have been very vocal about your support in this, and we definitely need more of that. Any of y'all that listen, please like you know, talk about it on social
0: media, tell your friends. If you if you think we're worthy, you know, uh, every little thing helps. Yeah, and like on, if you listen on uh, iTunes, give us a review there. It's yes, more for the Algorithms yes. than mm-hmm. us. Yeah, rate and right review. Let us know uh, if there's anything you guys want us to cover, or if you have an idea or any kind of common suggestions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can always email us at stophorrortime at gmail.com. Uh, and also on social media, we are at uh, Facebook at uh, Stop Horror Time, and on Twitter at Stop Horror Time Pod. So you can also reach me there. Uh, how can we reach you, Kate?
1: Yeah, you'll find me on there, and I'm Pan Sarah Lance on Twitter, too. You'll see me right now. My, my hobby is uh, Palpatine drinking an iced coffee, so you'll, you'll be like, oh, that's got to be Kate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Messy bitch. <laughs> Messy <laughs> bitch. All right. All right, folks, we will see you next week. Thank, Thank you guys you. for listening. Bye. Bye.